You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Well, today is the last Sunday of Pride Month, and as such, we want to revisit a topic that we touch on every year at this time. Uh, we're going to be talking about the six so-called clobber passages uh, in the Bible that address same-sex behavior. These six passages are called the clobber passages. I didn't name them that. They came to me named that. <laughs> uh, they've been called the clobber passages because they've been used to clobber LGBTQ folks over the head with for generations. So we're gonna deconstruct those six passages here this morning really quickly. I say quickly, this will take maybe 15 minutes. Um, and reveal how they shouldn't be used to clobber anyone <laughs> over the head with or condemn or exclude LGBTQ folks. The first one is Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and is usually the first stories, first passage in the Bible people jump to when they think of an anti-gay Bible passage. As the story goes, God sends two angels to the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to observe them to see if in fact the wickedness that's taking place there is as bad as God thinks it is and whether or not the city should be incinerated. And so according to Ezekiel 16.49, Ezekiel, not Genesis, but Ezekiel 16.49 says this, the sin of Sodom was that she and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. Notice, no mention of same-sex behavior. Rather, the reason why these two cities were condemned, according to the story, uh, was that they were arrogant, overfed, meaning wealthy and decadent, and they did not help the poor and the needy. As the story goes, the two angels were welcomed into Lot's house to stay the night. This was, of course, Abraham's nephew, we're told, and supposedly the only righteous man in town. And being righteous, he, of course, welcomes these strangers into his home, these two men. Hospitality is key to understanding this story. Hospitality was a really big deal in the ancient Near East. It was like the demonstration of a person's virtue, how hospitable you were to strangers. However, soon thereafter, some of the male villagers in Sodom and Gomorrah came and they, they pounded on Lot's, Lot's door, demanding that, they, that he send these two men out so that they can gang rape them. Lot refuses and instead offers the mob his own daughter instead. A real classy move by the so-called only righteous man in town, right? Lot basically says, here, rape my daughter instead of my house guests. But again, this, this highlights the importance of hospitality back then. It was considered a lesser sin for Lot to offer the mob his own daughter than for him to turn over the two house guests. 
That's how much they valued hospitality. So the sin of Sodom was not same-sex behavior or being gay. Keep in mind, this mob of men were you know, ready to rape Lot's daughter, a, a heterosexual rape. I'm sorry if this is triggering, if any of you have experienced sexual assault. It needs to be mentioned. Therefore, the sin of Sodom was really their violent nature. The sin of Sodom was their greed and their cruelty and their lack of hospitality for foreigners and strangers. So that's how you unclobber Genesis 19. The next two passages can be taken together because they're basically re reiterations of each other from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 18.22 and Levit Leviticus 20.13 both say this. You shall not lie with a man as with a woman. It is an abomination. That's a fun word, abomination. Um, you need to understand that that word, abomination, tovah, in the Hebrew, did not mean vile, disgusting, or subhuman. Tovah had to do with violating cultural religious customs, not evil actions that are universally morally wrong, like, say, murder. Lots of things got labeled tovah in Leviticus, abominations, tovah. Lots of things got labeled tovah that even the most devout and conservative evangelicals today would not think are abominations before the Lord. Like eating shellfish, eating pork. Evangelicals love their pork, do they not? They love their bacon. I love bacon. That's pointless. <laughs> but eating shellfish, pork, this is tovah, an abomination. Um, charging interest on loans is mentioned in, in Leviticus as tovah. Having sex, heterosexual sex, with your wife while she's menstruating. Sorry, it's kind of graphic. The Bible's rated R, at least. NC-17. That's tovah. No sex with the wife while she's on her period. God finds it very offensive, we're told. All of these things were described as abominations before the Lord, and yet no, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Christian today in Nashville or Tulsa who think that these things are somehow offensive to God or, or contrary to the, to the nature of the creator of the universe. So evangelicals love to cherry-pick their, you know, their Bibles, cherry-pick what they like. Eh, we all do, but we can admit it. So they've taken this long list of abominations in the book of Leviticus and decided that, that this prohibition against same-sex behavior is timeless and universal, but eating pork and shellfish and charging interest on loans and having sex with your wife while she's on her period, those things are okay. The other important thing to keep in mind here is that Leviticus and the other books of the law from the Torah were written specifically by Jews for Jews. Ancient Israelites for ancient Israelites. But we'll say it was written, they were written specifically by Jewish people for Jewish people. These texts were not written 
for Israel's Gentile neighbors as a way of telling them what God demanded of them. In fact, if anything, the customs and the traditions and the religious laws found in the Old Testament, or the Torah, were seen by Jews as a way of separating and distinguishing them from their Gentile neighbors. In other words, there is no evidence that they wanted or expected their neighbors, their Gentile neighbors, to adhere to their customs and traditions because they believe their customs and traditions were given to them by the Lord to make them separate and special among the nations. The Israelites did not believe God would judge the nations for not keeping the Mosaic law and the traditions and customs therein. This was for Israel alone to follow. The Israelites seemed to believe that if their Gentile neighbors lived justly, lived peaceably, then God was pleased with them. They did not think that God would condemn them for eating shellfish or pork or charging interest on loans or not keeping the Sabbath or for having sex with their menstruating wives or for that matter having same-sex relations. The Mosaic Law was not written for everyone. It was written by Jews for Jews. And the fact that this fact is completely ignored by evangelicals who claim to have a high view of Scripture is really ironic. You cannot have a high view of Scripture and ignore things like authorial intent and historical context. Just doesn't work that way. You cannot have a high view of scripture and revere and, and practically worship the text and ignore what the text actually says and means and was written for. Can't do that. Doesn't work that way. So that's how you unclobber the two passages in Leviticus. The next passage we'll look at is, the next three are from the New Testament. The first one is Romans chapter 1, verse 26 through 27. And the Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Rome. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. In the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error, end quote. The Apostle Paul, like many people in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman, first century Greco-Roman world in particular, did not believe, people back then did not believe that same-sex behavior was something you're born with, like a same-sex attraction. They didn't understand that it was something you were basically born with, that there's a biological component to it. They had no conception of that biological aspect. Rather, Paul and others believed same-sex behavior was the result of too much heterosexual lust and excess. In other words, they thought if you were too lusty in general, if you had an excess of sexual desire, too much of a libido, you would eventually lose interest in heterosexual sex. 
uh, and you would engage, therefore, in same-sex behavior. And this is what made it sinful in Paul's eyes, to be clear. As he says here in this passage in Romans, for this reason, God gave them up to their degrading passions. The problem was their passions. In the same way that drunkenness is labeled as a sin in the Bible. Not drinking, but drunkenness. Drinking itself wasn't sinful, but drunkenness was because it was a form of excess. Anything in that which is born out of excess and a lack of self-control was by definition sinful in Paul's eyes. And so this idea of same-sex sex applied here. Born, he believed, and they believed, not just Paul. They believed it was born out of this excess. Like many Greco-Roman people back then, Paul was deeply influenced by Stoicism, meaning Greek philosophy, specifically from the Stoic stream. And the Stoics and other similar Greek philosophies saw passion and desire as innately bad, negative thing. And they saw self-discipline and self-control as innately virtuous. Paul was deeply influenced by Stoic thought. And that's where a lot of this is coming from. Nevertheless, Paul does label here in our passage in Romans 1, same-sex behavior as, quote, unnatural. But keep in mind, he also says that he uses that word unnatural to describe men with long hair. Okay? Um, you'd be hard-pressed to find an evangelical, especially, the, the, you know, in the South, who they love ZZ Top, you know, the long hair. You'd be hard-pressed to find an evangelical who believes that men with long hair are, are doomed. They can't be Christian. And a man with anything longer than shoulder-length hair, you know, cannot be saved and is doomed to everlasting torment and hell. You will not find somebody that believes that. Maybe in the 60s when they hated rock and roll then, yeah, maybe that, but not now, probably. So the point is, it's impossible to divorce Paul's views of same-sex behavior from his first-century cultural context, and frankly, which, which frankly contained a litany, the first-century cultural Greco-Roman context contained a litany of bizarre, misogynist, um, patriarchal, and, and just completely incorrect views on human sexuality talking about 2,000 years ago, they had some really bad understandings of human sexuality and gender roles. It's safe to say that. That shouldn't be a controversial point to make. Um, therefore, when Christians today use texts like Romans 1 against LGBTQ folks, you know, they're just importing, anachronistically importing into the modern world primitive, and, and just really harmful social customs uh, that should be relegated to the trash heap of history, like burning witches at the stake, slavery. Those were old ideas that were bad, that we probably shouldn't carry on today because people generations ago thought they were good ideas. You know, the list could go on. So that's how you unclobber Romans 1. The last two clobber passages are very similar to each other. Um, they're just both lists of, of sins that keep you out of heaven. 
The first passage is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Do you not know, again, this is the Apostle Paul, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, robbers, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And then 1 Timothy verses, uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through 10 says something very similar. For the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their father or mother, for murderers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, these shall not inherit the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's in these two passages, in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy here, that the word homosexual first appears in the Bible. And that word homosexual didn't appear until 1946, okay? When translators creating what's known as the Revised Standard Version, one of the most popular and influential Bible translations out there, it was those translators in 1946 who translated the two Greek words here. The New Testament was written in Greek, Koine Greek, a dead language, okay? But these translators in 1946 translated these two Greek words here, malakoi and arsenikontai. Those are the two Greek words, malakoi and arsenikontai. They translated those two words in 1946, for the first time, into the word homosexual. That was the first time that word, those words appeared in the Bible. The translators from 1946 actually later admitted they were incorrect. Nevertheless, these words have since, you know, stuck and been retranslated uh, or, or put, in, put into other translations. But these translators later admitted their error, and they have since retranslated Malakoi and Arsenikontai into male, I'm sorry, they were, they were translated originally into male prostitute and sodomite. All right. Uh, but in the place, in other translations like the NIV and the New American Standard, um, you still find them translated as homosexual. I know that's kind of complicated, but we can talk more about that in a minute if you want. Um, what do these two words really mean, these two Greek words, malakoi and arsenikontai? Well, the truth is nobody really knows. Scholars disagree. Again, Koine Greek is a dead language, hasn't been spoken in 2,000 years. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Does that cause problems outside of these two texts? Oh, yeah. Don't think things are simple when it comes down to the Bible. It's not. Nobody really knows what these two words mean. But scholars have some good guesses. It's key to understand that when these texts were written 2,000 years ago, same-sex behavior was limited to basically two places in society, okay? Temple prostitution and pederasty. 
Male and female prostitutes were sex, well, sex workers is a better term to use. Male and female sex workers were common in pagan temples and were used as a kind of sex magic and worship. One can probably see why the Apostle Paul had a problem with that. And how his problem with it probably had little to do with the actual same-sex behavior itself, because there were also heterosexual sex workers there too. In fact, it was probably the case that a, that a male or female sex worker would have sex with men or women, depending on, it didn't matter. Um, but for Paul, it was probably more about the idolatry. His problem was with that you shouldn't be going there and worshiping these gods. And, and not really about the same-sex behavior itself. And then the other place where you would see same-sex behavior often in the Greco-Roman world was in the widespread and socially acceptable practice of pederasty. Pederasty was where wealthy adult men would have young male consorts. Keep in mind, such men were also usually in heterosexual marriages and had children. And their wives and everyone else in their community knew that they had young male consorts. It was just commonly accepted. It was considered socially acceptable for men of power and prestige and wealth to engage in this practice. In fact, it was probably encouraged as a kind of status symbol, like owning a Rolls Royce today. But such relationships were often, I mean, they were exploitative and even a form of sex slavery as the boys were not seen as free agents. They were not seen as partners. They weren't treated as such. They were essentially proper for wealthy and powerful men to exploit. And it's easy to understand why Paul would condemn that and should have. Because they were exploitative and abusive practices. It's easy to understand you know, why that's a problem. But again, the focus is on the exploitation, not on same-sex behavior. So those two words, malakoi and arsenikontai, a lot of scholars think that those words had to do specifically with temple prostitution and pederasty. And that's how you unclobber those two passages. And that concludes our look at the this, this so-called sixth clobber passage in the Bible. So to be clear, the, the Bible does not prohibit modern same-sex relationships like we have them, you know, committed, consensual, loving same-sex relationships. The Bible doesn't prohibit them because the Bible doesn't mention them. And it probably doesn't mention them because in the ancient Near East and in the Greco-Roman world, those relationships basically, I mean, we don't really know, but they basically didn't exist like they do today. We don't really know. And all this is, is helpful information if you want to hold on to um, a kind of conservative view of the Bible and still be affirming. This is helpful. It can help people who are you know, still very conservative and are thinking about the Bible get to an affirming place because they can still believe that the Bible is inerrant, meaning that it's perfect and it doesn't contradict itself. And yet they, you can still be affirming of your LGBTQ friends and family. And, and so this information is helpful in that regard. If you're that person or you're talking to someone from a more conservative, you know, Christian background, 
because you can help them get to an affirming place. But all, all this is basically just doing damage control for the Bible and PR work for the Bible. Um, and here's the problem with that. The quest for an affirming reading of the Bible, as well-intentioned as that is, inadvertently ties queer people's validity and worth to that book. Queer people's worth, humanity, and right to exist is not contingent upon what any book says, in my opinion. Their humanity and right to exist and love who they want to love is not contingent upon what any sacred writings say, ancient or new. But I'm afraid the exact opposite is inferred when so many well-meaning Christians and even, even often progressive Christians in an effort to maintain a so-called high view of scripture, work really hard to prove that the Bible is affirming, or at least not non-affirming. We need to stop giving the Bible this much power, I'm saying. We need to love queer folk more than we love the Bible. And I don't think one can do that if one is only affirming because they believe the Bible allows them to be. I think that's a conflict of interest and dangerously leaves a back door open. In other words, what if some really compelling scholarship comes along that proves that the Bible was really against same-sex, all same-sex behavior, or that you know Jesus was actually against it? If one still values scripture more than anything else, one is creating a situation whereby their love and affirmation of queer folk is in jeopardy. You know, who knows? Well, some scholarship might come along that shows that Malakoy and Arsenikontai really are talking about all, you know, our particular version of modern same-sex relationships. That's a problem. If one still values scripture more than anything else, one is creating a situation whereby their love and affirmation of LGBTQ folks is in jeopardy. And I personally won't allow that anymore with myself. That's a conflict of interest. So I think we need to close that back door and thereby say to our queer friends and family, there is nothing in heaven or on earth there is nothing that the Bible or anybody else could say to make me turn my back or condemn you or hurt you again. And for me, that's the deepest Christian thing anybody could say. Faith, hope, and love abide. But the greatest of these is love. Love trumps even faith. Love trumps the Bible. Love is the greatest thing in all of creation. Nothing is greater than love. That's Christianity. <laughs> so for me, the, the deepest, most Christian thing I can say is there's nothing, the Bible, nothing in heaven and earth could make me stop loving or affirming you, my LGBTQIA brothers and sisters. And with that, let us go into our time of communion. On the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and gave thanks and said, hey, eat, this is my body broken for you. 
And in the same way, he took the cup after supper and blessed it and said, and said, take, drink. This is my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. And here at Central, this table is open to all who wish to partake, regardless of background or faith. Jesus' table was open to all. Our table is open to all. And the way that we do this here at Central is you serve each other. I'm going to pass it out to each side of the pew to the first person, but then you serve each other. Take a little gluten-free cracker. You dip it in the grape juice. You receive it. You serve the person next to you. We believe that is symbolic of what it means for us to really be the body of Christ in the world and to minister and serve each other as Christ did. So be blessed now in this. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. at it, the Bible is saying that the female sex is also sinful, right? Like you have to leave town when you're, when you have a, when you're menstruating, uh, you can't be around anybody else. If anybody interacts with you, then they're, uh, need to get purified. Like uh, gender in the Bible, not just gender, but like sex in the Bible is pretty, uh one-sided right like yeah. the only way to be good people is to be a, a guy uh so yeah you know take, sorry that was take what you will from it yeah you're right that that um it's interesting that often um men are uniquely spoken of in the Bible as being you know, like the only possible offenders in this area, but sometimes they're not, but you raise a good point. Thank you. Um, yeah. Other thoughts, questions, remarks. Um, I think you kind of made it clear at the end on what your answer might be to this, but as you were reading all those things, I was just wondering, like, do you feel that it's productive at all, like attempts to like modernize the Bible and its context and stuff like that? Or because of what you said, I'm guessing it's kind of like, it might in the, in the end be sort of unproductive because of the gap between not yeah. just the cultural context, but yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I do think it's kind of unproductive now. I to, and, uh, Attempts to modernize or do damage control to do what's called exegetical gymnastics in order to um, clean up the Bible's image, you know, do PR work for the Bible, as it were. Um, no, I'm not into that anymore. Um, Maybe I was at one time, but, you know, I've just let go of, of I, 
I actually kind of like the fact, how do I put that? You know, that, that the Bible is very reflective of the brokenness that is humanity. And it accurately, accurately reflects the pre-modern world and its outlook on things like sexuality and gender, um, because it shows that human beings have always been, you know, attempting to understand God and what it means to be human through the lenses of their culture. Bible's no different than that. And I actually think it's good that it kind of reminds us of that because it makes us humble now and makes us wonder now, well, how are we understanding what it means to be human beings or understand our relationship to the divine in unhealthy ways that are totally informed by our culture? It makes us question that and, and be open to changing. The, 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 the brokenness, the frailty, the... Um, the imperfection of the Bible reminds us of our own and our need to constantly examine ourselves and be in dialogue with each other. But what is right? What is best for human well-being? What does being the people of God look like today in my context, in my relationships? To me, the Bible asks, forces us to ask that question because it's imperfect, because it's human. You know, th th those were their honest attempts <laughs> to live out how they understood what it meant to be the people of God in the Bronze Age or in the Greco-Roman first century world. You know, what does it look like for us in the 21st century in America to be the people of God? That's the question. And, and the Bible, you know, in its imperfections reminds us of that. And I think that's wonderful. But it's dangerous if you approach it from a fundamentalist or conservative perspective, the, the Bible, because then you anachronistically want to bring forward these horrific ideas of bigotry and violence and this, 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 this violent God who commands genocide, you know, and, and um, that, that's homophobic, this, this God that is patriarchal and sexist and misogynist and homophobic, you know, it's a terrible thing to believe in that God. You know, you can see the evidence in our society now what that, what that hath brought. Um, so, yeah, I, so all that to say, Andrew, again, I, I think because there's many folks who aren't comfortable yet with letting go of biblical inerrancy, letting go of that really conservative view of scripture. It's important to unclobber those passages and to, and to have that in our repertoire as we dialogue with people who are, who are our loved ones, our family and friends who aren't there yet, that we can help them get to an affirming place to be less uh, harmful towards the LGBTQ community uh, and still be, you know, conservative in their view of scripture. Does that make sense? So it's helpful, but ultimately the goal needs to be, you know, you got to let go of this. You got to, you got to change the way you view scripture because otherwise there's a conflict of interest there. And it's kind of like, um, you know, you, it's not unconditional love at that point. It's like, well, I, I love you, but only because the Bible says I can, you know, that feels icky, you know, imagine telling you, you know, I don't want to go further with that, but yeah, thank you. Uh, and I do this talk every year. Yeah, Emily, would you pass that? Thank you. I do this, this talk every once a year, we do the clobber passages because it's complicated. And every year that I go back and read through this talk, I'm like, oh, I forgot that, that point about Leviticus, or I forgot that point about Romans. So it's, I even forget 
some of these um, some of the technicalities here. So it's important to go over at least once a year. Yeah, Emily. Um, I just thought of something that like sort of goes with putting the Bible before the love of loving people. Um, that one of the things that people love about or accept about the Bible is that it they don't understand it all. Um, it doesn't all make sense, but they love it anyway. But like trans people, they also don't understand, but they are choosing not to accept and love them for that same reason. So it's it's interesting that like that just sort of came to me. It was like one is the Bible and one is a person. So we're again at odds with what does loving someone look like? And what does Christian love look like, you know, today in the modern world with technology and all the things that we have now that they didn't have then, which affects how we deal with each other, you know, um, it's just a very interesting thing. Yeah, good point. Yeah, thanks for that comment. Yeah, Ross, Emily, would you, uh, <laughs> Emily, you know this guy, I don't really know him. And I love how she's like, here we go. <laughs> Welcome, Ross. Thanks for being here today. Sure. Um, none of those passages are in the Gospels, right? You're right. None of them are. Isn't Touche, my man. Touche. Isn't Christianity about the Gospels? Fundamentally, I would I would agree with that. It, it's most it should be mostly about the Gospels and not what the Apostle Paul wrote, but that's and, not uh, that's not the case for most of Christianity today. But please go on. It's been a long time since I did any study, but uh, it seems to me that uh, Christ came to institute a new law, a new way of being, and it was not to reaffirm Leviticus. Yeah. Okay. Um, Paul came after, and Paul was a character. Uh, so you cannot focus on the Gospels and justify anti-gay attitudes. That's all I got. Yes, that was enough. I could have just spoken that today. It would have been a perfect sermon. Thank you. No, that's really solid. I com I completely agree. Gosh, Paul, Paul kind of ruined everything. <laughs> you know, Paul was brilliant, uh, to be clear. But he he, and there's. You, you raised so many good points, Ross. <laughs> the, the Christianity the church really adopted in the Middle Ages and the modern church really is a Pauline Christianity. It's unfortunate. Because um, Paul was one of the first, is basically was the first real systematizer of this Jesus, sto Jesus story. It's not even clear how much of Jesus' story he actually knew and understood. Nowhere in any of Paul's writings does he mention one of Jesus's parables. Nowhere does he mention the, the Sermon on the Mount. Nowhere does he mention any of his miracle stories. Nowhere does he mention um, anything about any, basically anything from the Gospels. So the Lord's Supper, he mentions that. We don't know what Paul actually knew about the Gospels, the four Gospels. We don't know. In fact, it's probable that they were written after what Paul wrote. Anyway, it complicates things. That's a great, that's a great point. And Jesus, yes, absolutely deconstructed. Absolutely, we would use the term deconstruction. He absolutely deconstructed the rigid 
interpretation of his religion, Judaism. And he remained a Jew. He didn't start a new religion. He was a Jew. He wasn't interested in forming a new religion. That's clear. He wanted to reform, in some ways reform his own, it appears, but he wanted to demonstrate what the heart of the law was. And for him, the law was fulfilled in love, period. We sing it every year at Christmas in the song, Oh Holy Night. His law is love and his gospel is peace. That's it. That was it for him. The law, you know, love fulfills the law. Even Paul says that. Damn him. But he does. Anyway, good stuff. Um, other comments, thoughts today about this stuff? Yeah, Marsha, who has the mic? Oh, there it is. From your perspective, because you went recently to a city council meeting and you heard people shouting. It was, it was a school district meeting, but yeah. You heard a very negative response of people there. From your perspective in the community, since I'm not in the community, is there anything being that you know of that's being done to revise the story or add something that brings what you bring to us out into the community? Um, no, <laughs> there's not like, um, I, I, just so I'm clear, are you asking me, is the story of Jesus being this, this loving, inclusive, radically inclusive and loving story of Jesus being spoken out in the community? Um, not, I mean, not really, um, the, the resistance, the, 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 the ally and LGBTQ resistance to the, the bigotry and hate is driven more by, I think, uh, a sense of civil rights being the issue that this is a civil rights issue more than a theological issue. But for those of us coming from Christianity, it is not just a civil rights issue, but it is also a theological issue. And I, I spoke at the last Glendale Unified School District Board meeting just as local clergy saying that, you know, because sometimes what happens in those meetings, to be brief, is folks will get up and say the reason why we need to stop these pro-LGBTQ policies in our schools and protect our kids from the gay agenda is because it's anti-Christian. Yes, those folks will get up and say that before the school board. And so I got up and I said, the depiction of Christianity often being demonstrated here from the other side is not, is not a, a version of Christianity that all Christians share. And I myself and many others like me believe that Jesus taught a gospel of love and, in, and radical love and affirmation and inclusion, especially for those on the margins. And so, yeah, I've said that, but it's not a big piece of the conversation. It's more about a civil rights movement than a theological or religious movement. But like the civil rights movement in the 60s, Martin Luther King Jr. and others at the time, James Cone, they believe that a liberation gospel was, was feeding in and at the heart of the movement. But I don't think that's true today. It's a civil rights movement, Marsha, more than anything else. Yeah. Anyway, it was a good question. Yeah. Um, that's a mess, Glendale Unified School District board meetings. That's scary. What's going on? And I just briefly, I was talking with May in the in the foyer this morning about this. 
going to those last two meetings and myself being physically threatened um, demonstrated to me just how bad things are in our country. Like I thought I knew before I went, but after going, I'm like, no, things are worse. Like the, the, the crowds there of people who live in this community, many of them, not all of them, some of them come from outside, many of them come from outside the community and they just travel around as provocateurs. But there was many folks from Glendale there who were just frothing at the mouth and saying the most hateful things against gay people, astonishing things. And I'm just like, things are worse than I thought they were. So it's, I don't say that to be scary, I guess, just to be sobering. And just letting you know what, what I saw and experienced. But yeah. Anyway, um, other questions, comments, laments, <laughs> complaints, anything. Okay. Well, let us say together our benedictions, the way that we come back together as a community here and end on a positive note. Let's say this together. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. All right. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for being here, everybody. Thank you to all of you um, joining us on Zoom and all of you listening to the podcast later on. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.